All right, hey, uh, real quick. This is just a PSA. I was told to tell you that today's sermon is rated PG-13. And so if you uh, have a child that needs to leave the room, uh, worship is uh, age-friendly for everybody. Uh, but Rod is preaching this morning, gets a little fiery about some, uh, some fiery things. So, Okay. We're, uh, we're going through this series. We're just looking at the gospel. And we're, we're, we're looking at it, how it comes to us uh, through the pictures and metaphors that God provides in his word. And I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, sometimes the, the metaphor, the picture that we have, like the picture of homelessness, um, or the picture of, of, of being an orphan, uh, that, that, that's like a, a negative side. Because the gospel starts with a problem. It's a solution. It's God's solution to all the things that ail us. And uh, so today, I mean, there's two sides to this coin. There's, there's, a, there's an ugly side, and sometimes we pick the ugly side of the coin and have an ugly picture. And sometimes we take the beautiful side of the coin, which is God's solution to our ugly. Uh, today, uh, I'm going to have this picture before us, which is definitely the ugly side of the coin. And it's, it's the word whore or whoredom. And you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I came to Crossroads to, uh, you're like, did I hear that right? Yeah, it's, it, whoredom is what a whore does. It, it's what makes a whore a whore. And this is a, a strong picture that the Bible gives us about one of, the, one of our, our problems, the problem of the human race. Um, and so, yeah, if, if you don't, if you, can't, if you don't like it that your kids are here today hearing a word like that, feel free to just get up right now um, and, and exit. Probably should have given you just a little bit advance warning. <laughs> I'm going to start with Hosea 3. Let's turn there. Hosea is one of the prophets. I have a couple of texts that I'm just going to put on the table for us today. And I don't have a blue Bible. So does anyone have one? Can you yell out a page number? Hosea 3. 733. And then also Ezekiel 16, which I think I have PowerPoint for that, which I'll, uh, we'll, we'll read these two texts this morning. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord said to me, this is to Hosea. Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And that word is much stronger in the Hebrew. Love her. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love those sacred raisin cakes. Those were served at the temples. Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. That's the price of a slave in the ancient world. 
And I told her, you are to live with me many days and you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man and I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. It's going to be some silent years, God says. But afterward, the Israelites will return and they will seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his, to his blessings in, his last, in the last days. It's Hosea 3. And now um, if we can read Ezekiel 16. Maybe they didn't get that PowerPoint that I sent. Okay. Oh, yeah. I have to look at it this way just because I can't see the words back there. <laughs> On the day you were born, your umbilical cord was not cut. You weren't bathed and cleaned up. You weren't rubbed with salt. You weren't wrapped in a baby blanket. No one cared a fig for you. No one did one thing to care for you tenderly in these ways. You were thrown into a vacant lot and left there, dirty and unwashed. A newborn nobody wanted. And then I came by. I saw you, all miserable and bloody. Yes, I said to you, Lying there, helpless and filthy. Live. Grow up like a plant in the field. And you did. You grew up. You grew tall and matured as a woman. Full-breasted with flowing hair. But you were naked and vulnerable, fragile and exposed. I came by again and I saw you. I saw that you were ready for love and a lover. I took care of you. I dressed you. I protected you. I promised you my love. And I entered this covenant of marriage with you. I, God, the master gave my word. You became mine. I gave you a good bath, washing off all that old blood and anointed you with aromatic oils. I dressed you in a colorful gown and put leather sandals on your feet. I gave you linen blouses and a fashionable wardrobe of expensive clothing. I adorned you with jewelry. I placed bracelets on your wrist. I fitted you out with a necklace, emerald rings, sapphire earrings, and a diamond tiara. And you were provided with everything precious and beautiful, with exquisite clothes, elegant food, garnished with honey and oil. You were absolutely stunning. You were a queen. You became world famous, a legendary beauty brought to perfection by my adornments. Decree of God, your master. But your beauty went to your head and you became a common whore, grabbing anyone coming down the street and taking him into your bed. You took your fine dresses and made tents of them using them as brothels in which you practiced your trade. This kind of thing never should have happened, never. And then you took all that fine jewelry I gave you, my gold, my silver, and made pornographic images of them for your brothels. You decorated your beds with fashionable silks and cottons and perfumed them with many aromatic oils and incense. And then you set out the wonderful foods that I provided, the fresh breads, the fruits, the fine herbs and spices, which were my gifts to you. And you served them as delicacies in your whorehouses. That's what happened, says God the Master. And not once during these years of outrageous obscenities and whorings did you remember your infancy when you were naked and exposed, a blood-smeared newborn. And then to top it all off, all your evil acts, you built your, your bold brothels in every town square, Doomed, doomed to you, says God, the master. At every major intersection, you built your bold brothels and exposed your sluttish sex, spreading your legs for everyone who passed by. 
And then you went international with your whoring. You fornicated with the Egyptians, seeking them out in their sex orgies. And you went on to fornicate with the Assyrians. Your appetite was insatiable, but still you weren't satisfied. You took on the Babylonians, a country of businessmen, and you still weren't satisfied. What a sick soul, doing all this stuff, the champion whore. You built your bold brothels at every major intersection, opened up your whorehouses in every neighborhood, but you were different from regular whores in that you wouldn't even accept a fee. God the Master says, I'll do to you just as you have already done. For you have treated our vows with contempt and broken the marriage. All the same, I'll remember the covenant I made with you when you were young. And I'll renew my marriage with you that will last forever. You'll remember your sorry past and you'll be genuinely contrite. And I'll firmly establish my covenant with you. And you'll know that I am God. And you'll remember your past life and face the shame of it. But when I make atonement for you, and I make everything right after all you've done, it will leave you speechless. Decree of God, the master. You may be seated. Yeah, Eugene Peterson in the message captures the literary quality of Ezekiel 16 really well. And Ezekiel 16 is, is, is one of those texts in the Bible that sums up uh, the whole narrative of the Old Testament. And if you turn there, you'll see that Israel is pictured as a newborn. A little baby girl, unwanted. And by the way, this is how unwanted babies were, were, were treated in this in that world, it was a very common practice. Um, they were just left in a field or in the garbage dump uh, to die. It's called infant exposure. In fact, especially with girls, because of the status that, that a girl or a woman had in that world, um, oftentimes uh, this would be the case for them. So I want you to just picture this girl, this, this, this little infant, this newborn, who is completely rejected by her parents, unwanted, and, and, and just thrown into to a field. God describes it, kicking and screaming. And it's in this situation that the most powerful king happens to pass by. And he picks this little girl up and says to her, live. And then he places her in a place where she can grow and where she can thrive. He adorns uh, her life with beauty and with worth. And as she grows up, she becomes the most beautiful, the most beautiful of women. And then the king does the unthinkable. Ezekiel 16 says that when she became old enough for love, that the king takes her to be his bride, and she becomes queen to the Most High. And God is telling us this story to say, Israel, that is what I did for you. I've done all of this for you. 
And there's so many images that, that God gives us of himself to describe who he is and, and the way that he relates to us in the Bible. Um, he says he's a strong tower that we can run into and be safe. He calls himself uh, a mother eagle uh, in whom we can find shelter in his wings. He calls himself a shepherd, the good shepherd, who cares for our every need. Uh, he calls himself father, father. As, as one who delights in us as children. But I don't think there's any greater than this image when God says, I'm your husband. I'm a love-smitten husband. In fact, every time I do a wedding, um, I literally... When, when, when I'm standing up here with the groom and all of a sudden the doors open and the bride uh, comes down, I literally have to bite my lip because, one, I can't help but think about my own daughter, Kate, uh, and just that day that potentially could someday be there. Um, but the thing that, that, that wrecks me is, is verses like this where God says, as a bridegroom, Rejoices over his bride on his wedding day, so the Lord rejoices over you. And to just think that the God of the universe calls himself this, this groom, like a groom on, on, on a wedding day, who sees his bride walking to him just being ravished with love for her. And God says, that's me. That's who I am. That's how much I love you. Do you know this? I'm not talking just intellectually. Has the penny dropped from your head to your heart where your heart knows this about God for you? Because I am convinced if our hearts knew this, because I have to preach this to my heart every day. This is gospel. I preach gospel the, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Pictured as a, as, a, as a bridegroom on his wedding day. That's what changes us from the inside out. In fact, later in Ezekiel, God is going to say, you know what, I'm going I'm to rip out your, your heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh heart that's alive and, and, and pulsating. And if you want to know how God changes our hearts, our stony hearts, it's not by hammering away and hammering them into shape. It's he melts them. He melts our hearts of stone. And the way he does it is through his love. And we live today 
in a world that, that is unloved and people who are unloved and people who don't know love and people who, who are starving for love. And let me just even hit it from this angle. Let's go back to the very beginning of the story and, and ask ourselves this question. Why did God even create the world in the first place? Have you ever asked that question? Well, if you look at how creation ends, I think that answers the question because what's God's crowning achievement in creation? It's, it, it's the last thing he creates. Men, answer the question. Last thing God creates, woman. And it is the crowning achievement of God's creation. Thank you. Man, I just lobbed, lobbed a softball there. At least one guy took a crack at it. <laughs> and if you keep seeing how, how creation culminates, it's, it, it's God forms woman and essentially walks her down the aisle to eat, to Adam. And the two become one. A wedding, it, creation ends with a wedding ceremony. Actually, it ends with sex. Between a husband and a wife. Because what God is picturing at this flesh and blood level of husband and wife in total union with each other, loving each other, God said that is a picture of the spiritual reality of why I made you. That you were made for God. We've been made for him to be in total union with him. And this is all over the Bible. I mean, Brad last week uh, brought it out with the exodus. That it ex the exodus of God's people out of Egypt was not just about God setting them free. But he redeemed them so that he could take Israel to be his bride. Sinai, when he brings them there, is a wedding ceremony. The Ten Commandments that God gives them, those aren't just a set of rules. Those are Israel's wedding vows to God. Or go to Song of Solomon this week and, and, and just read this because this book uh, depicts this love-smitten king who's just ravished with love for his bride. In fact, three times in the Song of Solomon, it depicts this, this picture of this king coming up out of the desert with his lover just draped all over him. And see, the rabbis say, this isn't just any king, and this isn't just any lover, but that king, first and foremost, is God. And we are the lover that are, that's draped all over him. That's why rabbis call the Song of Solomon the Holy of Holies. The holiest book in the Bible. Because it speaks of this, this holy union between God and his people. Isaiah 54. Verse 5. It's a text we should all be familiar with. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the, called the God of all the earth. And this God, says Isaiah, is your husband. 
What other religion depicts God this way? Now, I want us to see some of the implications of this because I think the, the, the implications are, are, are pretty ma- massive. When you, when you stop and consider uh, what marriage is, even at the human level, it, 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 it's an exclusive relationship. For instance, I can have, I, I can have many friends, I can, have, I can have many children, but I can only have one wife. And, and, and for my marriage to thrive, Libby must be absolutely first. She must come before all my hobbies, before my work, before my friends. She must even come before my children. Because what happens, if, if I put anything ahead of Libby for too long, my marriage is going to fall apart. That's why the first commandment, which again, those commandments are, are, are part of Israel's wedding vows, uh, states... You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, not even no other gods, but also no grave, graven images. Uh, I don't even want you to have any pictures of, of, of other lovers in this relationship. Because what God is saying is, I am your husband. And this is why the greatest commandment is, is, is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with everything you have. Back to this day, every religious Jew wakes up and prays that prayer and goes to bed at night praying that prayer. Love the Lord your God, everything that you have. Now when you look at the, 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 the good marriages, you also realize that, that they possess this quality. They're, they're, they're more than just married, uh, they're, they're lovers. There's like this mutual delight and, and adoration that, that they have for one another. And that's how God and us, that's, how God, that's why God made us. God made us for that. Uh, listen to what God says of, of his bride in verse 7 of his Ezekiel 16. And I know I read it, but I still want you to find Ezekiel uh, 16, and I still want you to put eyes on this. In fact, highlight this, underline it. God said, I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed. You entered puberty. Your breast had formed, and your hair had grown, and you were... Wow, this is almost embarrassing to read uh, as I read it. But then it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And then God says, you are the most beautiful, the most beautiful of jewels. (laughs) He says that. God says about his people, you are beautiful to me. Do you know that? Now listen, this is your spouse talking. And I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in a marriage. I've been in a marriage now for 25 years. And I can fool a lot of people. I can even fool myself. But the one person I can't fool 
is Libby. She knows things about me that I don't even know. And, and, and that's just the way it is. The one who made us, who formed us, who put us together, who knows absolutely everything about us, can still say, you're beautiful to me. Do you know that? I mean, has the penny dropped in your heart in regards to this one thing? Because there are so many dynamics at at play in our world that make all of us feel ugly in so many ways today. Because the reality is, is that in so many ways, we are ugly. But if you don't hear anything I say this morning, at least open your heart to this. God says to his people, you're beautiful to me. And for me, that just begs this question, how can Israel be beautiful to God? Is it anything that Israel did? Is it anything that Israel performed? I mean, how did Israel become beautiful to God? And and my answer is, no, it's nothing Israel did. All Israel did is put herself in the arms of God. God made her beautiful. And we live in a world that in so many ways tells us that we we need to be beautiful. And and even though that standard of of beauty is so superficial and and shallow and, and at times gross... No one feels like they can measure up. Because here's the deal. We can't make ourselves beautiful. Only God can make us beautiful. So we need to put ourselves in the arms of God. And he'll take the most ugly people and the most ugly aspects of our lives. And he will make us beautiful. And when you put yourself in his arms, you will hear him say to you, you're beautiful to me. You're beautiful. And I'll tell you the people who I know who know this are the same people who can look back at God and say, God, you're beautiful to me. That God isn't just some entity that, that, that becomes useful in our lives, but like David says in Psalm 27, he says, one thing do I seek, one thing do I long for, God, that I may be in your presence and gaze upon your beauty all the days of my life. Now, it's in light of this, all of this, it's just setting the table, that we need to see today's gospel picture of whoredom. This little baby left to die becomes a queen. In fact, imagine as she's growing up, how many times she would have heard people say, do you know how fortunate you are? Do you know how fortunate you are? And see, this is true. Everything that Israel is, everything Israel possesses is is not because Israel's so good, not because Israel's so so mighty, but because Israel is in marriage uh, to her husband. It's her husband. All her gold, all her silver, all her beauty, all her splendor, all her wealth, all her fame, all of her significance, and all of this comes from her husband. 
And yet at a pretty early part in the story, Israel has the audacity to forsake God, her husband, and to prostitute herself in such a way that we read from Ezekiel that probably made all of us pretty uncomfortable. Listen to verses 15 to 21. But you trusted your beauty, you used your fame to become a prostitute, you lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. And you went to him, and he possessed your beauty. And you also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and of my silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes, so you put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also, the food I provided for you, the, the flour, olive oil, the honey that I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant, fragrant incense before them. And that is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons, your daughters, whom you bore to me, and you sacrificed them as food to the idols. And I think the message actually captured the, the, the literary quality that much more. But you get the picture. And verse 25 is the killer. At every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty. You spread your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. I'll tell you what's being described here is addiction. Israel is described as a sexual addict. But here's what I want us to see. This is only the image God is using to describe idolatry. That's her sin. Idolatry. Now, what's idolatry? Because a lot of times we just have this idea in our minds that, oh, they get these little statutes and, 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 and they worship these idols. Uh, uh-uh. Those little statutes only represent a, a, a power. So they'll have a statue of sport to the god of sport, recognizing that sport is a powerful force. This is a little idol to the god of food, recognizing that there's a force behind food and we're going to worship that god. And it's with everything in life. And so idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. It's loving something or someone more than God. It's when we find our sense of worth, our value, our identity, our significance in anyone or anything other than God. Now, certainly, sexual immorality is a piece of this idolatry. But so can a job or a pursuit or needing to live in the right neighborhood or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or our appearance or the success of our kids. I mean, there's a thousand and one things that 
we can derive our sense of significance and worth and life and satisfaction from as opposed to God. John Calvin said it best. He said our hearts are like idol factories um, because we are constantly going to other things to find our satisfaction, our identity, and our worth. And we, we, we don't just go to those things, but our hearts begin to adore those things and worship those things, thinking that we're going to get what we need from those things. And what God is doing then with this image of whoredom is he's waking them up by, by saying that when you love another thing or person more than me. You see that whore standing on a street corner? That's what you are. God says that's what we become when we look to anything other than God to name us, to make us feel loved and esteemed, to heal the ache in our soul, to fill the void in our life. Uh, because God says you're in bed with that thing and we've put ourselves in the arms of other lovers. We're playing the whore, the whore. And I'll tell you how, how, how such a little deal we, we make about idolatry, but I'll just say, would it, would it be a big deal to you if I was consumed with being a pastor? If I was consumed with the success of Crossroads? If I was consumed with the success of my kids in sports, ah, that one might a little bit. If I was consumed with something as minor as the Michigan Wolverines, <laughs> would it be a big deal to you if, if, if you went to the local hotel and all of a sudden saw me there with a call girl? Going up the elevator? Absolutely. And see, what God is saying is, to me, all these things are the same. All idolatry is adultery because this is a marriage. And see, because this is a marriage, God isn't just giving us his will or his decrees or even his name. God is giving us his very heart. So I want us to even see sin in light of this. Sin is no longer just breaking the rules. Sin is literally breaking God's heart. And especially the sin of idolatry, when we begin to love things and worship things and seek things ahead of God, when we put ourselves in the arms of other lovers, it makes God a wounded husband. And I know that there are some, maybe many in this room right now, who know the pain of adultery in your marriage. of being married to someone who put themselves in the arms of another lover. It's like someone just ripped your heart out. And some of you have walked alongside of a spouse whose spouse uh, ha has done that to them. And, and, and you get a sense of the pain and the agony. 
And that's what God is describing here in Ezekiel 16. He's putting words to his wounded heart. It's almost like he's the husband who's been cheated on and he picks up his wedding album and he starts paging through it, just pouring his heart out over what happened and all the hurt in that. In fact, in Jeremiah 2, God says, remember Israel when we were young lovers, how I was a young bride, how you just loved and adored me, how you sought me. What happened to us? Now, the prophet Hosea, which is why we went there today, actually gets the task of putting this before Israel in, 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 in the most raw, real way possible. It's almost as if God says words aren't enough. God wants his people to see it, to feel it, and for Hosea to personally know what it feels like to be God. So in Hosea 1 verse 2, uh, God says, Hosea, go find a whore and marry her. Next verse, Hosea did it. He married Gomer, a daughter of Diblium. I'll tell you, this one act was at great cost to Hosea. But what he has just done in, 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 in a cost to his reputation and all of that, uh, is he's just redeemed someone. You keep reading and, and, and they settle down. They, they even have three children. However, when you get to the, to the third child and, and what Hosea names this child, uh, we start to realize that, that a lot of ugly is going on in this marriage because Hosea names this child Lo-A-Me, which means not mine. This child's not mine. Someone else's. Because Gomer quickly in this marriage falls back into her old lifestyle. She becomes a streetwalker, a prostitute. And after the third child, she leaves Hosea for probably the father of that child. And if you're wondering if this whole thing can get any worse, yes, it does. Because the chapter that we read, chapter 3, Gomer is now put up for sale. And she's probably put up for sale by her other lover, who commentators suggest that she's probably a pimp. And, and Gomer now has lived this life for a long time, and she's now damaged goods, and it's time to sell her. And before I get to just <laughs> gospel... We have to know something, that there are huge consequences when we worship other gods, when we're seduced by other lovers. Let me read verse 39 of Ezekiel 16. We didn't get to that part. It's worth looking at. Then I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers. I'll just give you over to them. And they will tear down your mounds. They will destroy your lofty shrines. And they will strip you of your clothes. And they will take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will tear you down. They will destroy your life. They will stone you. They will strip you and leave you naked. And you keep reading the next verse and it says, they will hack you to pieces. 
We have to see this. Because this is what all of our idols will eventually do to us. They can't save us. They don't love us. And in the end, all they're going to do is lay us bare, destroy us, and hack us to pieces. Leviticus 20, verse 10, God says this. He says, if there's adultery, someone must die. I mean, if you remember the covenant ceremony that God made with Abraham, that, that, that's the same kind of ceremony that they do at marriages. It's that whole uh, dividing the animals into two parts and the blood flowing in the middle, and, and each person in this covenant, both spouse would walk between the pieces to say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be cut to pieces like these animals? So here's the question, what's God going to do? And you get to the end of Ezekiel, starting at verse 60, when God says, I will remember the covenant that I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. And then down to 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. And then when I have made atonement for you and for all that you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth. You'll be left speechless because of your humiliation, says the Lord. I will make atonement, says God in verse 63. That's, that, that word in Hebrew is kapur, uh, from which we get the word yom kapur, day of atonement. The day of atonement is a day of repenting. It's a day of returning. It's a day of where, where God forgives us of, of everything, and he washes us, and he renews us. It's, it, it's that day when God's going to make everything right with his people. Listen to how Isaiah puts this in Isaiah's 62, 1 through 5. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, and that her salvation is like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication, and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. And you will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. But you'll be called Hephazibah and your land Beulah. And go down and look at what those words mean. My delight is in her. Married. For God will take delight in you. And your land will be married. And as a young man marries a woman, so will your creator marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is Isaiah talking after Israel has played the whore. In fact, one of the, the, the I don't know why the NIV translates this, but as a young man marries, not a young woman, a young virgin. That's what God's going to do. He's going to so redeem Israel and reconcile this relationship. She's going to be a virgin. 
And if you think Isaiah is getting carried away, Jeremiah says the same thing. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to renew my covenant. We're going to renew this marriage. And two times in Jeremiah, he says, oh, virgin Israel. But I think Hosea 3 paints... Well, James Boyce calls Hosea 3 the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. Because here's Gomer, this whore, who's being put up for sale. Now listen to me. Today, if you can't put yourself in Gomer's shoes... You're a self-righteous phony. And I say that in the most loving way possible. Look around. You are in a room full of gomers. I'm a gomer. We have all prostituted in various ways our relationship with God. We've all in different ways played the whore. We have. And here's Gomer. She's put up for sale. I mean, just imagine being auctioned like this. She's probably standing before this whole room full of people, stark naked. Her eyes are probably closed in shame. And then she starts hearing the bidding. Uh, Someone yells out two shekels. Someone yells out five shekels. Someone yells out ten shekels. Do I have 12 shekels? And then she hears the voice of her husband. 15 shekels sold. And she looks up and she sees him coming to her and he robes her and probably says stuff like, going to make it. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. The love I have for you is an everlasting love. And nothing in all the world can separate you from the love I have for you. And God says to Hosea, Hosea, when you love your wife that way, that is how I will love my people. I will, I will buy her back. This is what redeem means. It means to buy back, to, to, to restore one to full relationship. And the question now is, in the Bible, in the narrative, how is God going to ever do that? And my heart races to that, that whore that was thrown at Jesus' feet. And I think one thing that is missed in that whole story is when Jesus says the one without sin can cast the first stone. What he's really saying to everybody is, you've all played the whore. You've all done it. But then in another sense, her, her, her accusers are right because God's word says that someone must die for that adultery and, and here's 
the whole message of the gospel is that someone did die because even at the end of John's gospel in which this story is, you see Jesus standing in her place. He stood in Israel's place. He stands in our place. Jesus hanging on a cross is the truest love of the truest husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And he's not like other lovers who lay us bare and beat us up and hack us to pieces. He's the one who's laid bare. He's the one who's beaten up. He's the one who's hacked to pieces for us. And now ask the question, why? that'll change your heart. Because he's ravished with love for us. He loves us. He will do anything to get us back into the marriage. Are you in it? Are you in this marriage? Every wedding I do, there are vows. And the vows all go something like this. Each spouse says to the other, with all that I am, all that I have, I give myself to you. And that's exactly what God, your maker, does. He gives all of himself to you. Can you say back today, with all that I am, all that I have, I give myself to you. And what about the other lovers? Are we going to just continue in our adultery? Because the end of Ezekiel 16 says how God is going to redeem and restore this thing is going to leave people speechless. But Hosea 3 ends they will return. My people will return. The word there is shuvah, which is repent. Will there be repentance today? What are the idols? What are the other lovers? Are we going to get serious? Can we say, take my love, my Lord I pour, at thy feet it's treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. Shema Israel, Adonai Oheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with everything you have. Amen. God, help us to really know, to really know in our hearts how much you love us. Open the eyes of our heart that we can see and know the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. Help us to know that you say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Help us to know that nothing, 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. Amen. Now let's live loved, (laughs) which means we're humble, we're kind, but we boldly go into our world to show the love of God. Have a great week.